to not be a human doing, but to strive to be a human being. There is a South African concept that I find so important. It's called Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is that I am because you are, and that our being is made by the people and the environment being in the very present moment. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us for season one. Caleb and I really enjoy producing these episodes and sharing the stories of a diverse background of leaders with you. We learned a lot and I hope you did as well. If you haven't already, be sure to go and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We post new content and updates all the time. Um, there's also a lot of new changes coming in season two that we're really excited about. And we hope to foster more of a sense of community and engage more with our listeners. And those are the places to find all that information. We'll also be putting out a season one recap episode. It's going to be cool. It's going to be like a TED Radio Hour style episode. And we want to revisit some of our favorite moments from the past season. So be on the lookout for that as well. That'll be posted on all of our podcast platforms. Without further ado, today's guest is Dr. Edward Barksdale. Dr. Barksdale is the newly elected president of the American Pediatric Surgery Association. He's a division chief of pediatric surgery at University Hospital Rainbow Babies and Children Cleveland Medical Center. He's also a professor at Case Western University. Dr. Barksdale launched the Anti-Fragility Initiative, which takes a unique approach to addressing Cleveland's teen poverty challenge and has already received over $2 million of funding from the governor of Ohio. We hope that you enjoy our conversation. Today, we talked about committing to excellence, leading from a place of purpose, and the difference between success and significance. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. I just wanted to give a quick thank you to all of our loyal listeners. We're so grateful that you guys tune in to all of our episodes. You will really keep us going, and we really hope that you find a lot of value in these conversations. That being said, Caleb, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Really looking forward to this interview with Dr. Barksdale. How does, how does freedom taste after taking step one? <laughs> <laughs> every, every breath is a little bit nicer. <laughs> yeah. Well, I hope to be there soon. I'm still kind of in the thick of it. Dr. Barksdale, welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Gentlemen, how could I be any better? I'm looking at the future of medicine, the future of leadership. <laughs> it's not like we're just doing a podcast. I can see you so I can both see and feel your energy. So I couldn't be doing better. Great, awesome. great. So we wanted to start off this conversation by discussing a very unique experience that you had. And you talk about it a lot and it's bring it up frequently in all the press releases that we've read about you. The time that you met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I imagine that that was a very formative experience for you. And I wanted to know what was that like and how it kind of set you on the trajectory that you were on now. So, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, So I was about four years old. And so when you hear people talk about children, the things they see in these critical or formative periods affect at times who they can become. Sometimes if it's traumatic, it sets a stage. And at times, if it's inspirational for them, it can become aspirational. But I'm going to tell you that when I met Martin Luther King, when I saw him, I always remember now that there was this African-American man who looked like a preacher. And in the time I grew up, a Negro preacher, and I'd seen many of them growing up in the South, sitting on the hearth of of a fireplace, speaking with his hands as I'm speaking to you, to a group of students who were intently listening. 
he was unimpressive to me. There was no halo. There were no wings. And I didn't really know who he was, except that he was going to be teaching my sister and the group of kids and my parents these six principles of, of nonviolence, because I hearing my mother talk about nonviolence, my father as well. And so um, he was just an ordinary guy. And then a few years later, I understood not, I mean, I knew his name was Martin Luther King Jr., but I didn't know really who he was. A few years later, I realized not only who he was, what he did, but why he was. And the important part of that is that um, I realized that it doesn't take wings, a halo, or anything from divinity for you to be a leader and have tremendous impact. And so the power of seeing him and reflecting on it years later is that ordinary people can do extraordinary things if they have courage, conviction, and commitment. And I, I think that we often look to our leaders as being someone there. Okay, Mahatma Gandhi, someone there. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King, I'm giving you the people that I admire, someone there. Matthew Ricard, uh, the monk, uh, someone there. But we have those same elements within us. And I think it's so important for us to see our daily world and to look at the opportunities for us to be inspired to promote change, whether it's the, the climate or, or, or whether it's uh, Black Lives Matter or whether it's uh, children who are victims of crime, or whether it's about ensuring that people have a lunch at school or that people have reading ability. It's there. We had a guest on a few weeks ago who said a quote um, that's similar to, she said, representation doesn't just matter, it's everything. Is that something that you felt in that experience, just seeing someone who you know didn't have that halo and didn't seem to be you know, the man, but it was just a normal person and he was making all the difference. Did that, is that something that inspired you and that you felt? I can tell you that it, ins it didn't inspire me as a four-year-old kid because I couldn't process it. Yeah. Uh, right. It inspires me more now um, than it did then. And it inspired me more as an a teenager than it that did at the time and as a young adult. But the important piece that I tell you is that it's so much more inspirational now. And it kind of gets to, you know, I, I feel that our life's experiences are not just a staccato episode of something occurring. I think that our life experiences layer upon themselves into a somewhat matrixed way. And so that if we are fully present in those experiences, we always kind of step into our own future, which we don't necessarily know when we're four or 21 or 24. And so the term that I use is, and it's written, there's a guy, Otto Wormer, who talks about this presencing and stepping into the emerging future. And, and I really feel strongly that we need to process our thoughts uh, and and our feelings and, and make sense of them, to tell stories that allow us to move forward. And, and as you're moving forward, it clearly looks like you're looking to the past. And um, like you said, our experiences kind of uh, layer and meld into each other to, to yeah. produce who we become. And, and I found that, um, at least for me, I find more connection to where I was raised. I was raised in Hawaii. Um, mm -hmm. Than, than I did when I was just leaving at like 19. Right. And um, I'm wondering if, if that 
is also the same for you having grown up in, in Virginia. Yeah. So, you know, um, a lot of my personal philosophy is to live in the moment uh, and to really try not to look back uh, to the past, to kind of feel the past, but not look back. My grandmother would use a quote to me. Um, uh, she would say, um, and she called me this affectionate name, Ricky. She said, Ricky, don't look back. You're not going that way. And so uh, I'm deeply reflective during the month of February because people ask me to talk about Black History Month. And, and so one of the quotes I love is a quote uh, by um, uh, James Baldwin that says, you know, in effect, it says that the past, um, the past is not in the past, the past is in us and in the present because it makes up. So when you say I, I look back, I don't necessarily feel that I look back, but I feel the past within us. And it becomes important to me. And so much of my life, I've tried to issue race. You see me as an African-American male, uh, middle to kind of senior in age. And I recognize that I've had to see myself in that way. Um, not that I, I haven't felt African-American, but I want to transcend any of the biases. But as I see myself now, I recognize that so many formative experiences happened in my childhood that affect the way I see today. I grew up at the end of what's called the uh, Jim Crow South. So integration, the separate but equal, where my grandmother lived, rural Virginia, there were two bathrooms for, for men, uh, black men and white men and white women and white, uh, black women, two water fountains. And so that becomes indelibly etched on your psyche. And in some ways, as much as you try to purge that from your psyche, it still becomes woven, if you will, into your DNA and then becomes transcribed uh, at later times. And even though there may be, if you will, epigenetic effects, sometimes environmental cues may cause the expression of things that lay dormant within the fabric of your person, if that makes sense to you. You mentioned epigenetics. It's almost like it's an epi-experience yeah, event. That's uh, a great way. Yeah. One of, the, one of the proteins I study is an epigenetic regulator. We don't have to talk about that now. <laughs> uh, you also brought up being in the moment, mm -hmm. and I feel like that's something that's extremely challenging in the era we live in with social media and with everything going on, but also in medical training because we're always chasing that next step in our goals or that next title. What, what would you say to trainees about living in the moment, even though we might be you know, striving for that next thing, that next title or that next elevation in our career? I have to tell you, I don't believe you're asking me this because I, we could talk for the next four hours. I was on the phone last night with my son, who is a third year medical student at Case, having the same discussion. He's trying to figure out what his career. What I hate about medicine now is that you guys are striving, that you guys are, are chasing things. Uh, step, we, before we came on air, you, we were talking about pre-step uh, pre and post-step, and uh, that I find that so many medical students now are so focused on their step scores and score, they're not going to classes, uh, they're not relating to each other. Uh, the greatest thing for me in medical school were the relationships that I made. 
I could have learned to be a doctor at many different places, I think as well as I am now, but I couldn't have learned to be a better human without the people that I was in medical school with. Um, there is a South African concept that I find so important. It's called Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is that I am because you are, and that our being is made by the people and the environment being in the very present moment. So um, my grandmother, and people tell me I refer to her too much, but one of the things that she told me about life that I would offer to your, to your generation is to, to not be a human doing, but to strive to be a human being. And this concept of human doing, studying for step, thinking about getting into the top residency, thinking about where you're gonna be, it really takes away from the beauty of the moment, you know, the being and the beauty of who you can be to other people. Um, because I, I think now you might look at me and say, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, you went to great schools, uh, great training, you have a great career. But when I look at my life, it's the people on the journey, uh, the shoulders I've stood on, the shoulders I've leaned on, and the, the, the prints of people who stood on my shoulder, like a Jeff Upperman, I think you may have interviewed, so that I really value my journey by the connections that I've made with other people. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. That was great. So I, and I just, the, the last thing that I say is that, um, again, it, it's almost, uh, I would say to you, and what I told my son last night is uh, to put blinders on your future or just look a little bit ahead of you. And absolutely what social media has you guys doing is looking at the other guy or girl and how great their life is, what they're achieving, when your journey is really separate from their journey, your impact is going to be based, your impact in the world is going to be based on what you see in front of you and how you respond to it, not what you see beside you or electronically. I think what you're touching on covers a lot of, a lot of the problems with being a medical student now, namely imposter syndrome. Yeah. Um, but also something that you mentioned was the relationships that you you built during medical school and throughout your training have been the most important for you. Right. I found that as a in one of my student leadership positions, I, I interact a lot with the incoming class, the current M1s, and they have been completely online. They have had so much trouble um, interacting with their fellow students and getting to build those relationships. And a couple of them have, you know, probably have dropped out. And and because of the stress of not being a human being, yeah. they were they were just doing medical mm -hmm. school. So I wanted to ask if what advice would you have to a medical student who's feeling isolated for whatever reason, who might need help or might need um, a friend, but they don't really have a good connection with their classmates at the moment? So uh, I'd say two things. I think there are two responsibilities. Uh, ultimately, I'm kind of a person who's self-reliant and I'd say that the responsibility is on the student to make connections, to reach out uh, and to try to engage in whatever ways that are possible. But I'm gonna make some a statement that I think may seem uh, negative. It is not meant to be negative, but I think most medical students are introverts. 
And I think it's really hard for introverts, depending on where you are on that spectrum, to, to reach out to people that you don't know. You've spent four years or some time off pursuing this goal, which has not been a corporate goal. No one is going to help you take the MCAT or, or you know, it's, it's not a team MCAT that you do. So it's all your individual effort. So it cultivates that. Then you get to medical school setting where you're isolated, you're still in that mode and you begin to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Uh, this doesn't feel like what I always aspire to. Um, so I think it is the individual's responsibility, but I'm a big proponent for flattening the hierarchy of medical school breaking the medical school, medical education down into much smaller units, if you will, org units in which people are matched so that they can cultivate relationships to study, to socialize, and to kind of, if you will, be, so that medicine gets back to being the corporate experience that it was. Um, and I, this isn't meant, so I went to Harvard Medical School. I started in 1980, so 40 years ago. It doesn't seem that long ago. And I had gone to Yale College and I was, I am an introvert. And so I had studied in my room. I didn't study in the library. And so for the first time in my life, when I got to medical school, the joke at Harvard then was that P equals MD. So that although we were like, if you got anything less than like a B plus, it was awful in college but it didn't matter in medical school. We studied together and this kind of corporate nature of study and learning medicine. We'd have arguments about uh, well, it, whether the pudendal nerve was here or there or you know, physiology, but it brought us together. And I am still close with many of those people. Um, I, I think the isolation piece really falls on medical schools now that COVID is changing things. And I think people in the first year of college and medical school are at great disadvantage. But this is where the universities and medical schools need to rise up and take these great creative minds to figure out how we refashion um, medical education for, if I don't think this is word, but for the betterment or for an improved outcome. You talked about the importance of reaching out for help. And I think you hit it exactly on the head that medical students a lot of times are introverts and they're very type A and they want to be correct a lot of the times. And so by reaching out, I think oftentimes we feel like other people will think less of us mm -hmm. by doing so. And I was listening to a, a podcast actually yesterday that brought up this similar point and I thought it was so powerful what they said. And so I want to share it here. They said, when has somebody reached out to you for help and you actually thought less of them for doing so? Yeah, exactly. It, it doesn't happen. When people reach out to you for help, you're like, oh my gosh, you should have reached out sooner. How can I help you? What can I do to, to lighten your load? Yeah. So I think that paradigm shift is, is so awesome to think about that when people ask us for help, we're so willing to help them. And oftentimes we just need to reach out for help when we need it. Right. But, you know, I, I, I think that's so easy to say, but we have our own feelings about that. And so I, I think what has to be cultivated is the ability to fail forward, uh, a term I use, so that um, if you ask someone out for a date, a guy or a girl out on a date, and they say no, do, does that mean you don't ask anyone in the future? Well, there are some people who may not. But I think the, the whole thing is cultivating that level of, of how do you move forward when there's been something that's, you know, 
that's not there. So you have to keep fishing, I call it. I mean, you've got to bait your hook and put it back. Even if someone nibbles the bait off and swims away and you're left with an empty hook, you have to reach out for help. I had to learn that. That is one of my vulnerabilities that I, that I have. And so I'll tell you this brief story if I can, and let me make sure I can tell the story quickly. So uh, everything for me isn't about race, but race kind of colors much of who I am. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I was the only kid, uh, African-American kid, uh, for many years in a school of 300 people. And I can remember in, in maybe second or third grade, it was that I, uh, it was third grade, that I told my class um, that I wanted to be an astronaut. Now, in the 1960s, when I was growing up, you know, the space was everything. We were Apollo this, Apollo that. And then when I was in fifth grade, someone walked on the moon and it was this. And so, you know, as an ambitious kid, I told them I wanted to be an astronaut. And in a small southern town, Lynchburg, Virginia, all of my classmates laughed at me, including the teacher. And I was humiliated. And um, so then on the playground, a kid told me, um, he, they were still laughing at recess, and he told me uh, that the N-word never became astronauts. And I was absolutely devastated. And uh, I actually left school. I didn't tell anyone, I walked home. And so that was like, you know, big deal. Police were looking for me. They called my mother, but I, I was staying with my grandmother. And uh, uh, this was a pivotal thing. It affected me in, in elementary school. I think it really promoted me to do well. I never asked for help. Um, I was always afraid to ask for help because I felt it made my teacher who already looked less for me, look down on me. But I worked incessantly. And I think that's why I did well in high school. And that's why I did well in college and medical school. I had to unlearn in medical school this being vulnerable uh, to ask people for help, TAs and people of that nature. The people that I know who've been very successful have not had that fear of asking. And I often critique myself. There is a person known as Horatio Alger. You may know this story, but it's a story from the 1800s of the self-made man. I had always seen myself as this kind of self-made rag to riches man i've made myself but i think that is a bad thing uh we are made by other people and as much as you can be a little bit self-reliant uh, this kind of corporate growth of our humanity our talent is where we ought to be do you think your time fencing and being coached in that helped you learn that skill of asking for help and taking advice and taking constructive criticism? Absolutely. You know, um, I would have to say that you're incredibly insightful. I have not written that in many things other than my journal. And that's why I, I mean, it's actually, I'm even sorry you asked that question because it makes me really <laughs> emotional. Um, because it was my uh, Soviet Armenian coach who taught me that. Um, you know, I had really tough parents, but they were tough and loving in a way that I had grown up with. So that was never, I never felt threatened. But when you come to a place like Yale and you're kind of feeling that you are an imposter there uh, because it's affirmative action, 
And but I'm always a person who wants to be on the edge of my talents, pushing myself to do. And so I'm I have a fear of failure, but I want to put myself at a point where I can build the skills. But the coach, I'd never fenced, I was too muscle bound. But this was a man who stripped me down um, to the bare essence of who I was. And uh, it, it destroyed some people. And it was had nothing to do with rates. He did this to everyone. But it allowed me, once I realized my vulnerability, I had a framework or a lattice to begin climbing upon and then layering other aspects of my personality. And so I call him the most important mentor other than my father that I've had in my entire life. And he knew how to work with my personality to uh, keep me humble, which in general I am, but to also put the fire under me that never I should never be satisfied and that I should rely on external advice to help me. I think the good, um, the value of a good coach can't be overstated because I carry a lot of the lessons from my wrestling coach in high school with me today. Mm-hmm. Things like finish strong and, yeah. you know, be in the moment and don't give up. You know, anyone can do something for three seconds. Right. Um, and it, it instilled this kind of like you, this desire to push myself and push my talents and be at the cutting edge of myself um, to pursue my own excellence. So I wanted to ask you, what does excellence look like for you? Because it's something you talk about a lot and it's clearly something that you've been working on almost your entire life. Yeah. So um, it sounds either incredibly simplistic or, uh, or cliche, but for me, excellence, um, success is the pursuit of maximizing your talents uh, to the best level that you can and then giving that away. So success for me is not about personal achievement. It's about significance. It's about impact. How can I take what I have and effectively move it forward? If I might for you draw a picture or to draw a picture in the mind of your listeners of of what I'm talking about. So when I was a kid, my grandmother sat me down and explained this story to me. Uh, And I call it the race. Life is ultimately a race. And she would say that, you know, that in the beginning of your life, life is a strength. And that is you want to be the best, the fastest. You want to win the race. You want to be the smartest. You want to prepare, train. You want to run fast. And she said that the thing about running fast is that you can only run fast 100 meter at that pace, 400 meters for 200 meters. And that 200 meters is the first 30 years of your life. She said that then you'll realize that you're gonna get some baggage at that time. You're gonna gain some weight. You won't be as as lean as you were when you were sprinting. Uh, You'll have uh, a spouse or partner or children or demands of your career. And so you'll have to settle in to marathon pace and that you will want to realize you can't be at the front of the pack, but you'll, I mean, at the very front, but you'll want to be in the front. And I imagine all these people running marathons, the guys and girls who are are in that first, you know, thing. And she said, and that's going to be about balance. You got to find a pace that you can set. And you'll keep that for maybe the next 25 or 30 years. So until 55 or 60. 
But she said that what you'll realize when you've been running the race is that life was a race, but it was never a sprint. It was never a marathon. But what life really is, is a relay race. And that in this last phase, and this is where I am, this is the part of impact. It's about handing your baton to a group of people who will run faster and farther than you ever dreamed of running. And so that the ultimate story that life is being a race is that life is, um, is a relay race. And that the only reason that you ran fast and the only reason that you ran far is that you would be more appealing to hand your baton off. And she would use the African con proverb that says, you know, if you want to, if you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to have impact, give it up. Hand the baton to other people who are going to take that forward. I absolutely love that. And it's it seems to be a pervasive theme among many of the people we interview. Uh, one of our first interviewees, he had said that uh, he's expecting big things from us because of the path that he and his colleagues have set out for us. Yeah, yeah, it's good. To continue your race analogy, yeah. one of the things or ideas that I have is that it's not so much racing towards something, but it's actually doing the racing that is fulfilling and is is inspiring. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, no, I, I um, remember when I'm telling you the race, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I am building my talents to hand them off to someone. Uh, so I um, and, and this may get way too metaphysical and way too deep in my my writing. Oh, that's that's totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so much of my my life is not about a goal of a tangible goal. Uh, it's about self-enlightenment. I want to understand who I am. And I have um, always envisioned my life as a, a journey on the ocean. And if you see my office here. I've got uh, ships and several ships, but I, I, I kind of channel this metaphor that I am on a ship uh, and I'm going out and that sometimes I'm going to reach storms. And, uh, you know, there, there are several things about, and this all gets to my grandmother about setting this thing about what you need if you're going to be on a ship and if you're doing a ship. But um, one of her mantras to me, and I keep this on my desk, in a in a pad that says smooth seas don't make for strong sailors and love that quote yeah and so what i am aiming for is a, a deeper understanding of myself not a destination that's tangible but a light that is enlightening me as to to who i am and uh, how i can be better for others so it's this concept my goal is to be better for others to be better for you in this 45 minute to an hour uh, interaction. And it kind of relates to my own personal mission statement, which is I want to um, value everyone I meet and to bring value to everything I touch. And so it's not about making myself known, but about making the talents in you uh, uh, grow more so that you can hand them on to others. So it's almost like Odysseus in some ways of going on. And sometimes you have to tie yourself uh, to the boat so that you don't get attracted by the sirens because there's <laughs> lots of temptations um, to kind of go to shore 
or to step off it. I, I think in your generation, I think people have to learn to kind of tie themselves to the boat. My grandmother would all also say that no matter how tough the journey becomes, one of the things you learn is never get out of the boat, never jump into the water because your safety is a corporate safety. It's who, you, who you're with that helps. So now there's a couple of things that I want to ask you, but I'm going to yeah. go back to the, the original thing that I was going to, I was going to ask. Yeah. Um, you were talking about how your mission is to add value to everything you touch, yeah. more or less. Mm-hmm. And I want to know, how do you know if you're doing that? I, as someone with a lot of experience like yourself, I, I imagine you kind of had that feeling. But yeah. for someone like Caleb and I, who are just kind of getting started on our own leadership journey, and we're trying out things and sometimes we fail, like, when do we... How do you know if what you're doing is the right thing and adding value to what it is that you're, you are trying to accomplish? So can I answer that rhetorically? Yes. Why do, you, why, do you need to, why do you need to know? Will it keep you from doing what you think is, is right? I, I think that it, would, it wouldn't keep me from doing what I think is right per se, but I think it would help me do what I feel most strongly about better. Yeah. Well, so... Um, I, I, I turned around because I was looking for a, a quote I keep from a, a famous uh, Czech playwright who's actually president of the Czech, uh, Czech Republic before it was the uh, uh, Czech Republic. But I think that sometimes we, we, we think too much about whether what we are doing is the right thing and adding value instead of just doing it. It's a part of the, the being. Um, and the, the part of the quote I write is about, um, he talks about hope. And, um, and so hope is one of those things people joke about. Hope is not a plan, hope is not. But, and I'll, I'll make it brief, the quote, because it, it's, it's kind of uh, a little bit long, but he says that hope is a dimension of the soul, an orientation of the spirit, and an orientation of the heart. And I'm just going to read it. It is not the same as the joy that things are going well or the willingness to invest in enterprises that are obviously headed for early success, but rather an ability to work for something because it is good, not because it stands a chance to succeed. It is not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense regardless of how it will turn out. And so that's this concept of adding value is that we do things not so focused on seeing the immediate outcome, but looking at what our value system is, how we think we can contribute to the world and beginning what may seem like a plotting going forward because we know it's right. And so maybe that's arrogance, maybe that's that's uh, a false self-confidence, but that's what I would argue for your generation. When I, you know, I had this conversation last night with my son in such deep detail because there was an article that came out in Yale Magazine that's gotten kind of a lot of press in the hospital here. It's about me fencing and about my statement about moving from success to significance. And, you know, he understands success, making a lot of money, which that's not success to me, but isn't clear about how to become significant. When I was at your stage, I was just trying to pass my classes in medical school and do well. Some of these are, everything that we do in this realm is incremental. So you have an idea of how you, you are going to contribute, but that may pivot uh, or change in many ways. I've gone from uh, being a big brother in an inner city setting to working with children with profound disabilities and now doing a program in violence 
but the, the common theme has been with self-reflection, deep reflection. Do I think I'm being, being, bringing value to this cause? And, um, and, and self-evaluating. If people don't think I'm bringing value, that doesn't necessarily matter to me. It's like this quote on hope by Václav Havel is that you know it's the right thing, so you keep going forward. Does that make sense to you or? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. You talk about purpose and values. Yeah. A quote I like to refer back to is by Seneca, and it says, if one does not know to which port one is sailing, no wind is favorable. Yeah. And so what would you say to somebody who's trying to figure out what their values are, what their purpose is, but it's just not coming to them, or it's just they're struggling to find it? Yeah. So I wish, I mean, you're so well-versed. I have a book that I've written (laughs) quotes in that I had referred to, and I wish I could remember the precise quote, but remember, right? Uh, the quote that you just gave, uh, you've got to get your boat in the water, right? So yeah. that uh, what I argue is that you can't stand on the shore and figure out what port you're headed to. And so you must get in the water. And that when you get in the water, what you'll realize is that um, <clears throat> um, you, you'll have to be a good sailor and that you'll have to pivot. You may start in one direction, there may be a storm, an iceberg, or something that keeps you going. But your self-awareness, keen self-awareness, your crew will help you figure out to which port you will kind of migrate toward. You brought up uh, the crew again. So this is the other thing that I wanted to ask yeah. you. And you brought up Odysseus, and the, especially specifically the moment when he was tied to the mast. And right. he asked his crew not to tie, untie him regardless of what happens. Mm-hmm. That requires a lot of trust. Yeah. And I guess, is there any, I don't know which way I want to take this question, but how do you, how do you surround yourself? Uh, how, how do you surround yourself with people that you trust or like, what do you look for in people that you trust or like, how do you build a good crew? Like, what is your advice to someone trying to build a good crew? Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's trial and error. Um, you know, there are people so I've had a, a close crew, inner crew of people since medical school. Um, and then some people have become layered onto that. But um, when you spend a lot of time with people, you can determine whether you, you kind of trust them. And so I, I think, again, it comes to this being with people, uh, developing a sense of being kindred spirits and whether you have common views. I often think that your crew doesn't have to be large, but it has to be dependable. And um, my, uh, I, I think of the term at times as a, a tribe. Uh, there are people who you can be for and they can be for you. And uh, that is what I, I often use the term crew because again, I think that I'm, I'm on a boat. And um, sometimes um, I have found uh, in rare case, sometimes, um, even though you don't want to make port, but you may want to make port to let someone off the boat um, because uh, they may not be compatible. Or you may request that the crew that you're with uh, make port so you can get off the boat. Uh, and so, but I, I think the careful assessment of, uh, of your crew is very important as you're making your journey.
I want to go back to something you said, which was about being an introvert. And so much of what you talked about today is is people and community and building relationships. And it's hard sometimes as an introvert to do that. Mm -hmm. So what are some things that that you've worked on in yourself to maybe bridge that gap between just, you know, being alone and whether that's reading and studying on your own, but also being in community and building that crew and building that team around you to help support you? Uh, to me, the most important um, skill set in order to be a, a successful leader is adaptability. And so I have taken a deep dive in under, and you become adaptable by self-awareness. I've taken a deep dive in understanding who I am as a person and what the opportunities that exist for me to be better. And when you are very self-aware, then you can get into the water in a gradual fashion as opposed to jumping into the icy water and recognizing that maybe you're going to get a little frostbite in the, in the beginning. But as your body acclimates <clears throat> to the things that are uncomfortable, you become more comfortable being uncomfortable. So, you know, what I've, I've done, and I think it mostly started for me in medical school, I began to put myself in situations out there with people where I could get to understand who they are and hopefully get to understand uh, me. If you meet me, and I don't think, and, and this is a self wimps I don't, I'm unlike my wife. If my wife walked into the room, the lights, the current lights would go, go out because she is such a bright light of sunshine. You would say, why the heck did we ever speak with him? We'd want this brilliant light. Uh, my friend, Henri Ford, who is the dean at uh, the University of Miami, Miami my, one of my closest friends, the same. I am not that person. I don't bring shade in the room, uh, but I'm much more likely to come and speak with you if you'll talk to me for 10 minutes. And I will remember five or 10 years from now, um, the name of your dog, uh, what your hobbies are. Um, and so I'm the person that goes deep with individuals. That's how I connect with people. And so when you recognize who you are, you try to leverage your own strengths for that goal of stepping out of your introversion role. And um, I think that people want variety uh, in their interactions. If, if you really like the daylight cycle, you don't want to live with all sunshine. You can really appreciate the dusk and the dawn and the midnight when the midnight is the full moon. Uh, and so I would like to say that I am not the full moon or the sun, but I really hope that I can be, for many people, their North Star. So you can kind of look in that big black sky and you are just taken with the moon. But at some point, if you know the universe, you'll see the North Star and you may migrate in that direction. And what you know about the North Star, a term very common in the African-American South, is that you don't see it during the daytime, but in the depth of night, when things are most frightening, you can always look with certainty to know that the North Star is gonna be in the same place. So my goal is to not be the sun or the moon, but to leverage my introversion to be the North Star or even a minor star, but that people will know that there's a level of consistency of who I am. You won't see me when the sun comes up, uh, but I'm there uh, as the evening 
and night occur. Make sense or not make sense to you? No, it, it makes it makes perfect sense. And mm -hmm. the the North Star also actually plays a really big role in ancient Hawaiian culture, as it's the thing ah. that everyone was following when they were navigating the open oceans of the Pacific, yeah. which has been it was it was a very difficult thing to do, especially without compasses and GPS. Right. And they look to the North Star for guidance. And I wanted to ask you, as someone who strives to be others' North Star, who has been your North Star? Um, I, it's, it's been my mother and my father. Um, and I, I, I turned the video off only because I wanted to make sure that I seem like I'm a strong, unemotional surgeon. Uh, but as we, we started to talk today, it's the one year anniversary of my mother. And uh, so my, my greatest North Stars have, have been my parents. Um, they and, and the other two, you know, I talk a lot about my father's mother, my grandmother, but these are the people who really set for me the standards of, of behavior, uh, morality. I tell people that the house that I grew up in was built on four foundations. The first was a, a very strong foundation of spirituality. And for me, spirituality is not just religion, it's a sense of purpose. Um, and from an early uh, age, my parents talked about finding a purpose, something that will allow you to contribute to the world because the world's gonna tell you as a young black boy, that your life doesn't matter. And as my mother would say, in your life, just try to matter. The, the second kind of foundation of, of our home was a sense of family. And for us, family was not just our nuclear or extended family, family was our community. In the world I grew up in, I could walk for six blocks in one direction and three, and, and three and a half blocks in another direction and the houses were all about 10 to 15 feet apart. And I could tell you who lived in every house. But more importantly, they could tell you who I was and my family was. So my grandmother would say that, that this is not community. This is common unity. So family is about a sense of us. I've said this before. It's not just who we are uh, and who we are for. It's also who's for us. So... Number one is spirituality. Number two is a sense of family and extended and extended extended family. The third uh, principle that that you know has has guided me from my my family is a sense of excellence, pursuing a sense of both moral, physical, um, uh, academic excellence. My grandmother was a piano teacher, so excellence was a lot about discipline, doing the same thing over and over to get to some perfection. Now we were a religious family. She would say that perfection belongs to God, excellence belongs to man, so that you can always achieve excellence, uh, but don't kill yourself trying to be perfect. And, and then the, the final piece, which you know about, the fourth foundation of our family was a sense of social justice, um, that that was also power. That was our responsibility in the world to use our talents to make the world a little bit better for everyone. And that when you liberate one man's ability or a woman's ability to achieve their personal freedom, when you take down those structural barriers that exist, 
then you do it for the entire society. So those four things. So when you ask about uh, who was most important, I, I would say clearly my mother and father, but also my father's mother who lived next door. That triumvirate really formed the foundation of who I am. I think that's an awesome place for us to start to wrap up this discussion and something for our listeners to think about those four pillars as they go on throughout the rest of today. One of the last questions Peter and I like to ask our guests, all of them, because both of us like to read, is some of your favorite books. Any book sure. suggestions that you have for us? Yeah. Um, you, came, you came prepared. <laughs> well, you're. I'm in my... So I am a book addict. If you could turn this... Oh. This, this is my library. This is my, my library. And um, so there's a book that I read this year that um, I highly recommend. And it's a person who I'm really uh, a great fan of. He has another book, Happiness. But Matthew uh, Ricard, who is a, a monk, Altruism, I highly recommend this. I, I almost used this and uh, my grandmother asked my grandmother's forgiveness as I say this, almost in a biblical way, because there's a lot of guidance uh, that's here. Um, it's about meditation. He talks about global warming. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but it's really one that I highly recommend. Um, the other uh, books uh, that the other book that I like from a leadership standpoint, uh, and this is more a tactical book. It's called. It's by Sylvia Ann Hewitt. It's called um, Forget a Mentor find a sponsor. And we didn't talk much about this, but I strongly believe this concept of sponsorship. Many of you guys are looking for mentors. And if you're in a lab, you have a mentor or a mentor. These are people who kind of advise you. But a sponsor is someone who takes the machete through the jungle of the world and chops a path down for you. A part of this leaning in that we've talked about, a part of this vulnerability, and a part of this introversion, I think people, particularly in medicine and people who aspire to be leaders, want to find not just people like me who are advising them from afar, but people who they can connect with who will be their sponsor to help them move forward. So I like that book. And a, a reader that I, uh, an author that I like a lot is David Brooks. Uh, he's a conservative writer for the New York Times. His most recent book is Second Mountain. But those are, those are the books that I find popular. But Simon Sinek is uh, someone, his books. And the last thing, I'll just say this really quickly. I thought we'd talk about that we didn't, is the concept that my program is about, which is called anti-fragility. And so Nassim Tlaib, it's more of a technical business book, but anti-fragility is the concept that, um, and we've stolen a Hemingway quote for our program, is that the world breaks everyone and afterwards some are stronger in the broken places. What anti-fragility is for, for us is that the concept is that if you have a goblet, glass, you drop it and break it. It's fragile, it's broken, you can't put the pieces together. Um, we talk a lot about resilience, which I'm not a big fan of. You bend it and it comes back to normal. Um, but none of us, once we've been bent or broken, really come back to normal. What anti-fragility is, is it's almost like DNA. When it's bent or broken um, and re-anneals, it's stronger than it was. It has gained something by the chaos and disorder. And so um, I love this concept of not resilience, but cultivating strength, 
dignity and grace from the adversity that you experience in your life. And so there are a number of books, type R, things like that, that talk about that. But I, if I might leave uh, your audience and leave you, those of you who are introverts or those of you who are wildly extroverts, there's gonna be adversity that comes in your life and learning how to navigate that, how to incorporate that adversity into a, being a better version of you is what's gonna allow you to pass that baton more effectively to your family members, to your friends, and to those people who are gonna be looking up to you guys who are clearly bright and innovative and forward thinking so that they can be the best versions of themselves. Well, Dr. Parkstell, it sounds like because we didn't have enough time to cover everything, uh, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to bring you back in the future. <laughs> great, <I'd laughs> this is great. Yeah, yeah um, I'm delighted. Thanks for the honor. And thank you for being so open and honest with us and our listeners. We really do appreciate your candidness, your candor, your candor. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a great pleasure. Thank you. My honor, Caleb. My honor. Thank you so much. Yeah. that's all for today thanks everyone so much for listening to this episode of leading the rounds hopefully you were able to learn something new and get a better perspective of how we can improve as leaders if you like our content please subscribe and follow we work to put out a new episode every other week you can also contact us and connect with us on instagram facebook or twitter at leading the rounds or email us at leading the rounds at gmail.com See you next time on Leading the Round.